May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You may be seated. Back in 2014, there was a headline in Science Magazine that got of a lot of attention. You guys may have heard it. And it said, people would rather be electrically shocked than left alone with their thoughts. People would rather be electrically shocked than left alone with their thoughts. And the article goes on to describe this study that was done by social psychologists at the University of Virginia who recruited hundreds of people to participate in what they called thinking periods. And these thinking periods were exactly what they sound like. Six to 15 minutes of silence. No cell phones, no pens, no images on the wall, just you in an empty room alone with your thoughts. Now, as a mom of two young kids and an introvert, that sounds really awesome to me. I would pay for that. (laughs) But 50% of the participants in the study said that they did not like it at all. They said they were bored and depressed and that they would not repeat the experience if they were given the opportunity. And this is where things start to get really interesting because the psychologists decide to up the ante a little bit and add another layer to their investigation. This time, participants would come sit in an empty room alone with their thoughts, same as before, but this time they had the option to administer an electrical shock to themselves. Participants were given a preview of the shock ahead of time, and the vast majority of them said that they would pay money not to experience it again. It was unpleasant enough that they would pay to not have to do it again. But to the psychologist's surprise, 67% of men and 25% of women voluntarily shocked themselves repeatedly during the 15-minute thinking period, on average of four times in 15 minutes. One man, who is admittedly an outlier, shocked himself 190 times in the 15 minutes. I didn't even know you could press a button 190 times in 15 minutes. And so the headline was right. People would rather be electrically shocked than left alone with their thoughts. As Father Chase shared last week, we're doing a a little sermon series this Lent on the sins that creep into our lives unnoticed and set up shop in our souls. These sins that distract us and sometimes prevent us from rightly loving God and our neighbors. But the purpose of Lent is not to commit ourselves to a whole slew of new spiritual disciplines that will earn God's favor or put us in right standing with God. It's not a 40-day challenge where we get our diet in check or stop drinking so much caffeine. Lent is a season where we're invited into a posture of penitence. And penitence is just sadness for your sin. Lent is a season for us to feel real sorrow over our sin, real sadness that our natures are bent out of shape so that when Easter comes, we can appreciate more fully Jesus' triumph over sin and death. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at sin and specifically at the sort of sin that we might not otherwise notice unless we directly draw attention to it. But here's an important caveat, and if you've already tuned me out, I want you to listen for the next 10 seconds, okay? We're not doing this so that you can gird up and do something about it. We're not doing this so you can pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and become better people. We're doing this so that you can slow down and notice what it's doing to you. Slow down and notice what your sin is doing to you. Because only when we know that we're sick 
will we know how much we need a physician. Only when we know that we are thirsty will we know how very much we need living water. Okay? All right, so back to electrocuting yourself. This story should alarm you. It certainly alarmed people in 2014, but 10 years later, in 2024, it really isn't all that surprising, most likely. Our culture is allergic to boredom. And as a result, our, our attention spans have continued to shrink as the content that's vying for our attention has increased exponentially. Most people don't read long-form news articles anymore. Most people fill the silence in the car during their commute with podcasts or music. And don't even get me started on TikTok, okay? I don't even want to hear about it. <laughs> but the pain of being alone with our thoughts is not a new pain. We've just gotten really good in this modern era at distracting ourselves. But if we can't be alone with our thoughts without opting for a mild electrocution, if the depths of our own thoughts are that uncomfortable to us, how much more difficult then is it for us to be alone with God? How much more difficult is it for us to be alone with God? And this difficulty has a name, acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. Many of you are learning a new vocabulary word today, just like I did this last week. Acedia stems from a Greek word that literally means not caring. When you're tempted by acedia, you find it incredibly difficult to engage in the goodness of God's presence or even to care about engaging in the goodness of God's presence. Thomas Aquinas defined acedia as a sluggishness of the mind which neglects to begin good. A sluggishness of the mind which neglects to begin good. And much more recently, the author Tish Oxenreiter defined acedia as a sadness that good things are hard. I love this definition. A sadness that good things are hard. Acedia lulls us into satisfaction with our work or intoxication with our rest that distracts us from the one most needful thing in our lives, which is our life with God. Acedia tricks us into thinking that the many demands on our time and attention are more significant and valuable than our fundamental need for God. And as is the case with all sin, there are three parties at play here. There's a part that's the devil's, there's a part that's ours, and there's a part that's God's. So I want to look at each one of those three in turn. The part that's the devil's, the part that's ours, and the part that's God's. So good morning, hope you had your coffee and Wheaties because we're gonna start with the devil. <laughs> in the early centuries of the church, Christians fled out to the desert wilderness to experience solitude and silence and prayer in the company of God alone. And out in the desert, they were besieged by all sorts of different temptations from the devil, which confirms my suspicion that Satan really loves desert climates, I'm sorry to say. But there was one demon in particular that the desert fathers and mothers wrote about all the time, and it was this demon called Acedia. They referred to Acedia as the noonday devil, because after a productive morning of work and prayer, these saints would go off into their huts to pray the afternoon office. And you Phoenicians will understand this in a unique way. It is stinking hot in the desert in the middle of the afternoon. There is nothing less appealing than sitting in a veritable furnace and contemplating God's presence. So these monks and nuns would find that their minds would wander. They would become so distracted by the baskets that needed to be weaved or the plants that needed to be pruned or the nap that needed to be taken 
and they would find it almost impossible to focus any attention or energy on God. Now, there's a modern name for this phenomenon, and it is the afternoon slump. That's the time of day when I hear Father Chase's espresso machine whirring through the walls. And when the brain fog and the caffeine crash take over, it's nearly impossible to get ourselves to do anything meaningful. Suddenly, our work that compelled us so greatly during the morning loses all of its appeal, and the hours just drag on until quitting time for an eternity. Obviously, that doesn't happen to me here, but like in other jobs. <laughs> the noonday devil might tempt us at noon, but the temptations carry us through the rest of the day. We drive home in a stupor to a house that is never clean enough, full of children who are never well-behaved enough, to a dinner that is never nutritious enough, and then we collapse on the couch and watch Netflix until we pass out. Can I get an amen? And there is nothing that pleases the enemy of God more than our apathy toward the most important things in our lives. So if you can relate at all to this, you've been visited by the old noonday devil. And don't be deceived by the cute nickname. Sin is the dwelling place of Satan. And we should not be surprised that the one who brazenly tempted the first human beings in God's paradise would continue to torment God's people in this fallen world today. As St. Peter wrote in his first epistle, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Peter's words don't excuse us of any ownership of our sin, do they? Armed by the Holy Spirit, we've been given consciences, and we've been given brothers and sisters with consciences that can discern and take notice of the creeping influence of the devil in our midst. So while there is a part of Assyria that's the devil's, there's indisputably a part of it that is ours to reckon with. But before we get into that, I want to make a critical distinction, and I'm going to be very, very vulnerable with you for just a minute. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 15, which means that for almost 16 years I have at times struggled to get out of bed in the morning. There are times, more times than I care to admit, where it's difficult for me to focus or concentrate on anything other than the noise in my head, much less to pray and read scripture. It is not about not caring. It's about not having the energy to focus on anything other than beating back the darkness. Acedia is a temptation. Depression is an illness. And it's one that typically requires some cocktail of grace and sometimes medication and sometimes therapy to combat. There's not any shame in it. There should be no secrecy around it. And there should be absolutely no condemnation of it from the pulpit. I'm just not going to participate in that. So I wanted to get that out of the way, get that square, before we talked about our role in Acedia. Because we do have a role to play, don't we? And again, this is not something I think we need to do, but something we need to notice as we encounter the noonday devil in our own lives. I have noticed that acedia usually takes one of two forms. Sometimes it looks like straight-up complacency or apathy, the genuine not caring. And this is the plight of the prophet Amos that he was trying to address in our Old Testament reading this morning. He looks out and he sees the leaders of Israel all stretched out on their ivory beds and they're singing songs and plucking harps. And he goes, what is the matter with you? 
Do you not see that your land is surrounded on all sides by people who are determined to destroy you? Do you not see that your people have given themselves over to idol worship and pagan sacrifice? Why are you just lying there? Get up! But remember what I said earlier. Acedia is sadness that good things are hard. It is so much easier to lie in an ivory bed than it is to chastise a nation for idolatry. It is so much easier to pluck a harp than it is to root out injustice in your land. And while those things are on an enormous scale that's almost incomprehensible to us, I think we can relate to it really easily. Good things are hard, aren't they? It's hard to start a conversation with someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, much less someone who does not share the same political views as you. It is hard to get through one day of sobriety, much less to commit yourself to a whole lifetime of it. It's hard to persevere in a marriage where you're not overwhelmed with affection the way you were in the early days of the relationship. Good things are hard. So one sinful pattern that emerges when I'm tempted by acedia is just to not do the hard things. I'll grow complacent. I talk about this jokingly all the time. Some of you have heard me say this. When I don't want to deal with something, I'll say, that's future Bree's problem. <laughs> but the problem with future Bree is that she is the same person as present Bree. And eventually her problems become my problems. Complacency is a band-aid. It is not a cure. So that's one. That's one form. Complacency or apathy is one form that acedia often takes. But the second is busyness or workaholism. Because good things are hard, I can easily avoid them by doing the 50 million other things that I need to be doing. And oh my goodness, do you all know what it is to be busy? You know what it is to have kids and activities all over the valley and immovable deadlines and the weight of everyone else's crushing expectations. Busy is the rallying cry of our culture. We can't spend time with our loved ones because we're too busy. We can't attend to a beloved hobby because we're too busy. We can't come up for air because we're too busy. The noonday devil will convince you that the world will stop turning if you stop moving and that you simply don't have time to be alone with God. And my gosh, that lie is just relentless. And one of the fundamental outgrowths of this in my own life that sometimes keeps me from the presence of God is that my value as a person is tied to my productivity. If I work hard and do an excellent job, then my boss will love me. If I go out of my way and do things for my friends, they will love me. If I make myself available to you all 24-7 and respond to every email instantly and answer every phone call, you all will love me. But guess what? None of those things allow me to be a real person with real limits. And none of them leave me any space to be alone with God. But what's tough about this manifestation of acedia is that none of those things that I mentioned are sins. It's not a sin to be a good employee or a good friend or a good priest. Those things are honoring to God, actually. But when I prioritize them over my life with God, they are distractions at the very best, but they're actually destructive at the very worst. 
Assedia will tempt you into thinking you either have to do everything or nothing at all. You either have to be the most productive person on the planet or you have to sit catatonic on your couch listening to sad Radiohead songs. And if it's all up to you to root out your acedia, chances are you're going to wind up in one of those two extremes. You just are. You're human. But, but, if you are crushed and exhausted and convicted by what I've said so far, I want you to hang in there with me. Because the solution to your acedia does not rely on your spontaneous desire for God. It does not rely on your ability to open up moments for him in your already packed schedule. The antidote to your acedia is not your effort, it's something else entirely. Because don't forget, there is part of this whole battle that is God's. If you've attended any of my classes, you know that I love Father Robert Fair Capon. And Capon wrote once, St. Paul never said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the condition that after a reasonable length of time, we would be the kind of people no one would have ever had to die for in the first place. I'm going to read that one more time. St. Paul never said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the condition that after a reasonable length of time, we would be the kind of people no one would have ever had to die for in the first place. That is not the gospel. It's just not the gospel. Jesus knows that we are sinners. He knows. He is not surprised or repelled by our sinfulness. It's for the sake of sinful people who are tempted by acedia or narcissism or any of the rest of the things we're going to be talking about the next five weeks. All of those things. It's for us that he came. And St. Paul's words in the lectionary this morning say what is unassailably true about how God relates to us in our sinfulness. And I've practiced reading this like 10 times and I haven't made it through it once, so bear with me. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? Nothing. Nothing. Not our sloth, not our striving, not our productivity or our depression, not the noonday devil or the arrow that flies by day. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My first year of seminary, 
I took a class where we committed to a weekly practice of 20 minutes of centering prayer. 20 minutes, it's a pretty low bar. And the first night, the professor led us in this exercise, and it was very much like the thinking periods that I described earlier. No scripture reading, no music, no looking around the room, none of that. Your only task for 20 minutes is to focus all of your attention on the love of God. And y'all, it was agonizing for me. Seriously. When the timer finally went off, I felt like I'd been sitting there for two hours. If there had been some way to electrically shock myself, I would have done it. And so when we decided to go around the circle and share how it went for everyone, as we tend to do in those circumstances, it was my turn. And I admitted it was like truly awful. I was so distracted. I got distracted a hundred times. I had to remember a hundred times that I was even praying. And my professor smiled at me so gently, and he said, Bree, that is so wonderful. You returned to God's love a hundred times. What my professor was pointing out to me and what I'm pointing out to you this morning is that God's love is not defined or measured out based on your acedia or your attentiveness. God knows that I am a lost sheep. God knows that I will wander away 99 out of 100 times. And every time I return to him, even when I do it under duress or by accident, he rejoices over me as his beloved daughter, and he rejoices over you as his beloved child. Friends, Christ died for us knowing full well that our sinful flesh would prohibit us at times from desiring him knowing full well that sometimes we wouldn't even care that we don't desire him. And even when you are crushed by the noonday devil, what is most true about you is that God loves you and he desires relationship with you. He desires you so deeply that there was no depth to which he would not go to save you. He stood in the heat of the day in the desert for the sake of monks and nuns centuries later who would find themselves unable to pray. He experienced the pressure of unceasing demands on his time and energy for the sake of you and me who can't help but do too much. He wept and he experienced sorrow for the sake of some of you who can't make yourselves care enough to get out of bed in the morning. And right now, Right now, as I say these words, and in just a few minutes, as we celebrate together at the table, we can be sure that he is praying for us at God's right hand. Jesus, who is one with the Father, the only one who has never been crippled by sin or crushed by acedia, is praying for you every time you are crippled by sin and crushed by acedia. And brothers and sisters, I am sure, I am sure that nothing can separate you from his love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.